because there are a number of guests here today, I did want to point out in our bulletins there is a gold sheet that you are very much invited to use during our sermon study. There's uh, notes there as you follow along and also a Bible study to take home based on our message today. This past week, one of the most popular trending videos on YouTube, some of you may have even seen it, is one about a young boy who's waking up from anesthesia after having his right or his arm operated on. I'd like to show you a small snippet of this video that over two million people and counting have watched this past week. How'd it go, Matt? It went good. Your arm feel bad. <laughs> it feels good. Good. You know? I know. Yeah. So it wasn't so bad going to sleep, was it? Is it no. Going to sleep's awesome. Yeah. It feels good. I feel dizzy. Do you? <laughs> Why do I feel dizzy? <laughs> it's a mess. Dizzy. I make an observation. Um, while this video seems very legit, that is, I, I don't believe with the rolling of the eyes this kid was acting, very legit, very, you know, not set up. At the very same time, because there's been other videos like this, you know those parents were there with their video camera hoping that their son would say something after anesthesia worthy of letting the whole world know, right? You see, there was a day when fathers, strong ones, would carry around briefcase-sized VHS camcorders, and they would videotape with one simple motivation to get things their family did on tape so that their family could watch it for years to come. But today, a few decades later, we have little video cameras and phones that can videotape, and for many people it's a very different motivation. Not everyone, but many. What amazing, goofy, newsworthy thing can I get on camera so that I can you know, upload it to YouTube, get two million hits, and maybe an invite to the Today Show? Now, there's nothing wrong with you know, doing that and, and having you know, something on YouTube. And in fact, if, if someone in, in my family, I probably would do the same thing, if someone in my family was dizzy and I got it on tape, um, second thought, if it was my wife, I've been married long enough to know that you wouldn't upload that to YouTube, husbands. Um, they can do it to you, but you shouldn't do it to them. That's good marriage advice. Um, but the point is, is that different people today have different motivations for taping their kids. In the same way, different people have different motivation 
for the activity of following the commandments. Different motivations in people's hearts and lives for doing the same activity that others are doing, but that is keeping or following the commandments. As I mentioned earlier, this series we're going to take a look at is all about the Ten Commandments. And um, one of the things that may come to mind to you as we think about that is that this series about a bunch of commands and thou shalt not, you might be thinking it's going to be kind of a downer. And I'm reading your mind, you might be also thinking that, you know, with it being such a nice season and with the type of series that we're, we're doing that maybe it would be easy to sort of miss church a little more than usual this summer. Um, can I ask you, don't do that. Because here's the thing. This series, I believe, has the potential to be one of the most powerful studies that we've ever done as a church family. You see, if you really want to know about a person, one of the things you can do is to look at what sort of rules they have in their home. And that will give you guidance or evidence of what is important to them. In the same way, if you want to know more about God, what he's like, and what's important to him, one of the things you can do is really dig down on his rules, his commandments, his direction for life. And that's what we're going to be doing. You know, there are so many misconceptions out there about the Ten Commandments. And by far and away, most people, you know how they view the commandments? Most people view the commandments as a test or a checklist by which or through which we kind of earn God's love or which God, through it, might love us more. In fact, I'm not telling you that you should do this, but if you did this, if you went around your neighborhood, knocked on doors, and asked, are you going to heaven, or do you believe you're going to heaven? The majority of people far and away, their answer, whether yes or no, would somehow be based on what they do. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. Or... I'm better than most, or I try to keep the Ten Commandments, or I know the Ten Commandments, maybe even. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people approach um, death and approach heaven. They, they look at the Ten Commandments as a test. We're all supposed to try to get as many people or as many right as possible so that we might be right with God. The, uh, what I call this is the semester exam approach to the Ten Commandments. Here's why I call it that. Um, I, in college, usually sort of loved and dreaded this time of year. I loved it because school was almost over. I dreaded it because semester exams came before school was over. And then like many of, not many, a few of my classmates, I actually cared about my grades, and I wanted them to be good. So I had a lot of anxiety, and I remember taking the exams, and, and the professors would then say that they'd post the grades in the student center on the bulletin board, and there was that like number code, so you don't know that Johnny got a bad grade or a good grade or whatever. And so like a day or two afterwards, some classmates would come back to the dorm and kind of say, such and such a professor just you know, posted grades, and then... Many of us would go over there with bated breath, nervous, hoping and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying <laughs> that we got a good grade. And lots of anxiety. The thing is, 
lots of people view their relationship with God and also even heaven that way. And there's lots of anxiety because they look at the Ten Commandments and or God's laws as sort of a semester exam. Am I right with God? Will I get a good grade, so to speak? And so in life and in death, they're filled with anxiety and nervousness. Now, some of you here today might think that you don't ever struggle with that type of thinking because you understand grace and, and how we are saved and so forth. And, and I really hope that that's true. I hope that's true. But I would be surprised if it wasn't true that every single one of us here have in one way or another found ourselves falling into that type of thinking when it comes to God's rules. We find ourselves thinking that God loves us more when we do the right thing. And that might sound like a true statement, but can I tell you what the truth biblically is? God loves it when you do the right thing. But his love for you through Jesus never changes whether you do the right thing or not. He loves it when you do the right thing. But his love for you through Jesus, it doesn't change. It's constant. A cool part of all of this is that God sets the tone for all of the commandments before he gives them. And so today we're not looking at the first commandment. We're looking at the first two verses of Exodus chapter 20 as God sets the tone for us. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. A little bit of background. Um, it's just uh, probably six months after the Jewish nation were freed from Egypt and slavery. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. Moses is on top of a mountain called Sinai. God has come in a very special way to speak to Moses. He's going to give Moses not just 10 commandments. He starts with those. He gives him over 600 commands most of them about worship life, which because Christ fulfilled them, that's a whole other sermon. We don't need to worry about those anymore. But he gives us at the beginning these Ten Commandments, and we're reading just the first two verses. And Moses writes, God spoke all these words that are coming. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God. And I, I want to stop there, and here's why. I want you to notice what God says here. He says, I am the Lord your God. And what I'm calling attention to is to notice that he doesn't say, I am the Lord the God. Now, if you're not quite sure what I'm meaning by this, let me give you a different uh, example of this to see if you can track with me. Another way, point with this would be for me to say, I'm Ben the pastor, or I'm Ben your pastor. Do you notice the difference? You just you even feel it when I say it, don't you? Because your implies a relationship. Your implies that there's a friendship there. Your implies that you're mine and I'm yours. Before God even gave the commandments, before anyone knew what his rules were, before anyone knew what his commandments were, God established and made sure they understood I'm already your God. I already have a relationship with you. Even without these rules, I have a relationship with you. You haven't even gotten them yet, but I'm with you. Let's continue. 
I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so they could better understand this relationship. Moses points them backwards. And I'm going to point you, us even a little further backwards, okay? 650 years before Mount Sinai, the Jewish nation started. But nation would be too strong of a word because it started with two people, Abraham and Sarah. And by the way, Sarah was unable to have children, but a great nation was to come from them. When Abraham was 100 years old, the, Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, grew to three. Abraham, Sarah, and their son, Isaac. A hundred or so years later, there's a great famine in the land, okay? And God says to his people, go to Egypt. Joseph will help, you know, you survive the famine. And so Jacob, the patriarch at that time, takes him and the Jewish nation to Israel. I mean, to Egypt. About 45 people. When they got there, they were treated like royalty at first. But then over time, very quickly, they became slaves. And for 430 years, the powerful Jewish nation were slaves. Twice as long, almost, as what the United States has been around. Okay, that's 430 years. They lived as slaves without any rights, without any power. There was no strength in them on their own. Then God said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, right? And what did Pharaoh say? Yeah, no. And, and you know, you got to understand, a lot of Egypt's economy was based on slaves. The Jews, basically, these slaves built the pyramids. The, the Pharaoh, being a good king, wasn't going to let them go, even though he should have. What God does next intervenes for his people. Because they would not be powerful or a nation on their own. They'd be slaves on their own. So he begins to pick off all the things that were important to the Egyptians. They're, even some of their gods, they kind of worship the Nile River because it was their source of water and life. You know what God did? He turned it to blood. They worshiped their livestock because through it they lived. He wiped their livestock out, God did. The Egyptians really, you know, felt strongly about health. God sent them boils. He sent gnats and locusts and flies to consume their blessed land and country and destroyed almost everything. God's flexing his muscles and saying, I am God. And then he shows them that he is their God with the tenth plague, which was, many of you know, to kill every firstborn male in every household, including the Jewish households, except there was a way out. We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to read these words very quickly because they're so connected to Exodus chapter 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this is about six months before Mount Sinai, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. All that is is to say that what's coming next is going to be so important, you're going to organize your calendar around it. This is the first month. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. 
If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. They must be your best, okay? And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So God says, I'm going to wipe out all the firstborn males, and then the next thing he does is give them meal instructions. Kind of odd. It wouldn't be odd for them to slaughter lambs, something they would have always done, but what came next in this meal prep would be odd. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the side and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Instead of disposing of the blood the way you normally would, God said, all right, here's, I got some now decorating, you know, tips for you. I don't care if it doesn't go with the curtains, but spread the, the blood of that lamb all over the door frames. What? Verse 12. On that same night, I, God, will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, the Passover, I will pass over you, pass over that home. And in that home, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God was going to deliver his people. God was going to be their savior. And the way that he was going to deliver them and have a relationship with them and save them was not through any commandments. They hadn't gotten them yet. It was simply through the blood of the lamb and trusting in God's promises. Fast forward from Exodus chapter 12, six months, and now Moses is standing on Mount Sinai. Okay, it's six months later, and before God gives them all these rules and all these commands, he wants to establish the order in which rules and commands from God are supposed to be. I've established a relationship with you. You are mine. I am your God. And now, here are some things. God didn't free his people from slavery to go, into, go in there, and, into the desert, and earn his love. I mean, come on. He had just sent ten plagues and divided the Red Sea. He showed them his love. And so this very true statement is important to remember. God gave the commandments to Israel not to earn his love, but because he loved them. God gave the commandments to Israel not to earn his love, but because he already loved them. Now it's interesting, verses 1 and 2 that we looked at, they don't exactly apply to us, do they? How many of you uh, have lived in Egypt? <laughs> not today, that's for sure, huh? All that's going on there. How many of you have been slaves? Kids? Childhood doesn't count. All right? That's a whole different sermon again. We haven't lived in Egypt. We haven't been slaves. Have we? 
Are we slaves to anything? You know, the Bible says we are. The Bible says that right now, even as Christians, until we're in heaven, we're slaves to sin, to death. And if you're not sure what that means, or if you're not sure whether that's true in your life, let me give you this challenge. I've given it to you before. Go the rest of the week without sinning. Words. Actions. Thoughts. Ooh, thoughts. How about the rest of today? And even just the rest of today, to be perfect in our thoughts... I doubt, now some of you may be able to, I doubt there will be a person in here who can be perfect in their thoughts, even for an afternoon. So what's the solution? God didn't give us the Ten Commandments as a semester exam, you know. Do the best you can. When you get to heaven, check the bulletin board. Here's your number. No? You know what he did? He sent a lamb. He sent the lamb. He sent the lamb of God, his son. And when that son shed his blood, God didn't take it on the cross. He didn't take it and, and wipe it over your door frames. But in a very picturesque way, you know what he did? He wiped it all over our stuff, all over our sin all over our failings and our thoughts and words and actions that don't reach God's standard. And he wiped them all out. And even though we're still slaves, kind of still until heaven to sin, ultimately you are not slaves. Ultimately, we are freed from death and freed from sin because we know, just like Jesus reminded Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, that we will live forever because he is the resurrection and the life this is exactly what John reminds us of in 1 John 1. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In fact, this powerful connection between the Passover that we read about in Exodus 12 and Jesus' blood as the Lamb of God is not just some nifty coincidence I found that would sound good as a sermon illustration. It's in the Bible over and over and over again, this connection. Listen, when, when Jesus was about to die and shed his blood the night before, he gathered his disciples together to celebrate what? Anyone remember? It's pa class participation. The Passover, which we just read about, blood of the Lamb on the door frames and all that kind of stuff. While he was in the middle of celebrating the Passover, this is not by accident, what meal did he begin? Communion, the Lord's Supper. That has to do with the blood of another lamb, the lamb, the lamb of God. See, just as the Egyptians were slaves and God freed them before he gave them his rules, so also we are slaves to sin whom God first freed through Jesus, created a relationship with through faith, and then said, my children, I don't want you to fall off your bike. Wear a helmet. Here are, here are my rules. Why? God gives us the commandments 
too. Not to earn his love, but because he loves us. He gives us the commandments not to try to earn his love and make God love me more, because he already does. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see that. We're going to see how the commandments are meant to show love to us, okay? And one of those, we already mentioned in our first lesson, that you get to see, when you look at the commandments, that you need Jesus. Because we're not perfect. Another thing he does through the commandments to show us love is to remind us that his ways are always the better ways. That we may not agree with all his commands at first blush, but he didn't ask us. He just gave us what he knew was best for us, just like a parent, because he loves us. Now, how does this change things as you think where we started with your relationship with God and your motivation for the activity of following the commandments? Well, maybe you're already there, but I, I'd like to make sure you're there with a closing illustration. I'm across the street from our house we have uh, neighbors who have this huge, energetic dog, uh, ironically named Angel. And um, I call him huge because he's like the size of four or five four-year-olds. And, and I call him energetic because he likes to run. Uh, specifically, he likes to run at people, okay? Especially he likes to run at four-year-olds, all right? So a few weeks ago, I was walking downstairs, and I noticed that our youngest daughter was looking out the front window, and she looked just a little bit fearful. And so as I looked to see what she was looking at, I noticed that she saw that Angel was out of his fence, okay? So he was just, you know, Angel roaming the neighborhood, all right? Actually, he jumped over the fence, and that's a different story, too. But um, so me and a neighbor went to make sure that the owner knew that Angel was out, and he did the best he could to sort of corral him back into his fence. But as you think about a dog leaving the fence and leaving an owner's sort of fence, um, let me ask, do you think an owner would respond to their dog this way? Thanks for letting me know that Angel has gone outside the fence and is not following my rules perfectly. Because he's outside my fence, um, he's not really any longer my dog. <laughs> as long as he's in my fence following my rules, then he's my dog. Since he's not, not my problem, you go figure it out. Sorry. Now, that's absolutely ridiculous, right? When does a dog become its owners. When it's in the fence, when did that dog become theirs? When the neighbors bought him. And whether they the dog follows the rules or not all the time, that dog is still the owner's. My friends, we don't always follow the rules. God's commands perfectly. I don't use this illustration. My point is not that it doesn't matter, okay? Because it does. And we will want to follow God's commands. But my simple point here is this, that you are not God's child only during the times while you're in his fence. We were made God's when he bought us with the blood of Jesus. And that doesn't change. And so that brings 
peace to death and peace to life. See, there's lots of different people with different motivations for following the Ten Commandments. But you know what ours is? Simply because he loves us. And we love him. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, as we study the next number of weeks, there are going to be things that, that prick our hearts when it comes to our failings, um, as that happens often. At the same time, there's going to be great direction for us as we want to follow you. Dear Lord, please, first of all, forgive us for the times we fail, but to remind us that through faith in Jesus, that doesn't change the fact that we are yours. Lord, use this uh, Sunday and this study to encourage us and to give us more peace than we had before we came, more confidence about eternity than we've had. In Jesus' name we pray.